Welcome to You're Making It Worse. I'm Elliot Glazer. I'm Brent Sullivan. And I'm H. Allen Scott. We're here. We're queer. Meh. Textual healing. Okay, guys. Well, uh, big announcement. This is our 250th episode. Uh, which is absolutely unbelievable. I cannot believe we've been doing this podcast for, like, what? Five years, six years, I think. Happened. We started in 2018, so so really, so five years. Yeah, wow. Um, so the listeners don't know this, but <clears throat> to commemorate our 250th episode, the three of us decided to get tattoos independently. We thought we would just go out and get tattoos just to kind of celebrate. Now, mine is actually still pretty sore, so it's still under the band aid. Uh, but I got a tattoo of. Uh, the podcast logo. Um, so the you know the three of us are on my arm, and that's that's uh, very special for me, and it's something I'm going to really cherish the rest of my life. Now, Alan, you told us that you were going to get at you were going to get a tattoo of your five best friends. So actually, <laughs> I got really excited and started getting a little emotional, um, <laughs> thinking about you know me being commemorated on on your arm for the rest of for the rest of your life so i'm excited to see it alan go ahead and unveil your tattoo <laughs> oh oh wait it's just a tattoo of five books no. <laughs> anyway and elliot you said you were gonna get a tattoo um oh it's not on your arm it's on okay uh looks like it is on i, I just the rest of his rear end but uh <clears throat> Let's see. It says, "Oh, interesting. I think it's Latin. It's it's beautiful. It says, Hesike in hede iget nula." My God, that's beautiful. I don't know what that means. Let me go to Google Translate and see what that means. Elliot, it means anyone under a foot long need not apply. Oh, God, it's on him. Foot long. Oh God. <laughs> need not apply yeah apply <laughs> and it's a google form that they have to like yeah. go to from yeah from his grinder oh that's, that's his profile link is a google um, form. <laughs> you need to audition to me it's like he's the setup is always it starts with brent so it's like it, he's always like <laughs> the, the the straight man in in the joke setup and then it's like if he's gonna put yep alan comes second so that's gonna be you know, mo- a modest poke and then yeah. <laughs> the double whammy at the yeah. end. <laughs> we, have, we also have to say, too, before we got on, Brent was like, and Alan, this one includes you. I include you a lot. <laughs> but you subconsciously knew you needed to say that because you don't. <laughs> no. Well, just Elliot is so easy to caricature. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's so, true. It's, true. It's so much easier. But Alan, go ahead, get us started. Okay. Now, do you guys remember when Ron DeSantis was supposedly a friend of the queer community. There was a moment. Really? There was a moment that it actually happened and it was shortly after he was elected governor. Now he was elected in a very close race. And so he was getting any community he could and he went to Pulse. He actually did an event at Pulse and he he talked to Pulse survivors and he was trying to, it seemed like have an outreach to the Florida LGBTQ community. 
And obviously things have dramatically changed. Things have certainly. Since then. And now he is um, basically the new Fred Phelps. He kind Mm -hmm. of is the new Fred Phelps with the drag ban and the don't say gay and the trans healthcare banning essentially in most of Florida. It's a, it's, he's become insane. And he had this new campaign ad. Well, it wasn't his, it was a different group, but he supported it basically that was both homophobic and homoerotic at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a huge thing last week that they put this ad out. And then because it was so homophobic that even Republicans spoke out against it because it was so bad. And and so now it can't even be found on the Internet except for all the articles and news stories about it and everything. And so the the advocate did an article posing the question, like, is this a winning strat? Is his blatantly anti LGBTQ stance, a a strategy, a winning strategy for him. And I run a reference George W. Bush campaign and the campaign that he did against marriage in 2004 and how that very much was a winning recipe for him across the country. There are many states that passed, you know, uh, legislation to add to the state constitutions banning same-sex marriage. But with DeSantis, it does seem like there's this weird disconnect that even Republicans are like, you're going too hard on the culture issues. Like you need to at least be a little bit more mainstream Republican. What do you guys think? Do you, I mean, there's, there's some support. I want to read some supportive stuff, but I want to know what you guys think about where, if this will work for DeSantis. I'm just so, I still am like, I, I feel so confused because it just seems like it's a, it's under, it's a very common understanding to anybody who's like remotely aware of politics and or the news and and the culture that like fight at this point from the from the right is their focus is on denying like trans people their existence yeah. and, and that seems it seems like they've moved on past the lgb the lgb of it all and so what's confusing about this to me is not only that this feels like it's not a winning strategy because people have gone so, so, uh, uh, I guess, tolerant and accepting of most of gay marriage and, and, and gay people outside of the trans community. But secondly, I'm like, he, he's cl- like, you don't have to know much to know that he's like an Ivy League graduate. Like I think yeah. he went to Harvard and Yale. Like he's an intelligent man who is so clear. It's so clear that he is trying to like act in a role that is, He's trying on this role. He's a bad actor. Mm-hmm. And yet, I guess it's all of that. The artifice of it not only makes it seem like it's not a winning strategy, but who would, I don't understand how you buy into him, especially you know, if you're on the right. You know, uh, it, it's it's interesting you say that, Elliot. And I, I've always sort of thought that I think a successful political candidate could be someone who basically says, takes the tack against his, in in this case, Republican competitors by saying, these guys are all just putting on a show. They they all live, first of all, almost all of them went to fancy Ivy League schools that are filled with fags. Right. Uh, They all live in huge cities. Uh, You know, 90% of them, you know, they... They te- they technically go back and forth, but they buy big ass houses in Washington D.C. because they would rather live in D.C. than North Dakota. And I, I, it's there's there's always been this interesting sort of dichotomy where I think exactly what you're saying, Elliot. People put on a really good show, but it that's exactly what it is. It is a show. Yeah. And I think in this instance, um, 
<clears throat> I mean, I, I, Alan is absolutely right. In 2004, everyone knows that gay marriage helped George W. Bush. But uh, most of the time, social issues uh, curry very little favor with voters. And I think in a, in a general election, in, in a, a general election, separate that he is running in a primary, which it usually right, becomes of course. more culture issues in a primary. Um, uh, in a general election. And so and obviously, you know, people yeah, generally run farther to the right for primaries and so forth. But I do worry a little bit uh, about trans issues. I, I like I think we've talked about in this podcast. I still don't think we've really um figured out how exactly to pitch and sell trans rights to whole you know large sw- wholesale swaths of the population yeah um and so i worry a little bit about that but i i, I don't think that you know talking about a, a handful of kids who you know can or can't play sports uh, according to their uh gender identity in high school or something that i don't think that's a winning strategy oh. for a presidential election i what is interesting and what i see in my DMs, in my comments, I, I actually have been keeping a tally of the comments and DMs that I get. And in the past three weeks, I've literally screenshotted them all and I counted them before we started just for this reason. I've I've ha- I've gotten 328 different messages that regard to basically what this person who's quoted in the article is saying. This sentiment is basically the comments and the DMs that I get nonstop. It's from uh, Rod Tom- Thompson, who's a Republican communications consultant in Florida, very familiar with Ron DeSantis. I think he even worked with Ron DeSantis a little bit. And it says this, LG is one thing and big tent for the GOP, the LGB basically, that the GOP can accept LGB. But he goes on to say, but T as in trans has become atrocious, preying on children and parents and must be stopped. I know a lot of gay Republicans and everyone is opposed to the trans agenda, which it sounds like you are, which is what they're talking about Ron DeSantis. Um, So, I mean, that message is quite literally like what I'm obsessively getting. Also the founder of Gays Against Groomers, an actual out lesbian who, this is a gay group out here. It's a huge group and they, do such dangerous things to drag shows to trans uh, rallies and events and different things they are such a dangerous group and please 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 report and block them on instagram but they said in response to ron DeSantis's video i do think that this video is a bit of a slap in the face to myself and this is from jamie mitchell by the way who's the founder of gays against groomers i do think this video is a slap in the face to myself and other rational gays who not only don't have a home due to the left radical democrats destructive policies but who who have worked hard to show that the republican party is for everyone so you're right brent that there which i know you love to hear but they're right you're very right that the trans issue is a big part of this discussion and democrats have not figured out how to communicate about it but i don't think it's so little i actually think based on just very you know like just looking at my comments and the reactions that i've been getting to literally clips from fucking like to wong fu thanks for everything julie newmar and a b arthur clip that i posted that people are sending me shit being like i'm fine with lgb just not the t there's something that they're doing that is making they're weaponizing transgender communities and creating this false save the children narrative and it seems to be working for regular fucking voters do you do you think do you guys think that these people would have cared enough to send you these dms or make these comments pre desantis pre 
I, I don't know where, where to. No, exactly. I don't think so. I don't. There was DeSantis. I do not believe, and I cannot pinpoint. And I was looking into that because I was thinking like there must have been something before DeSantis. There must have been something. And there was the North Carolina bathroom bill that right. did go through, and that was that was I, I believe it, the school was allowed to able to be able to have like gender neutral <laughs> bathrooms and everything. But there was that moment for a little bit, and it kind of got wind in during the Trump campaign yeah. when Trump was outside Trump Tower being like, would you allow Caitlyn Jenner to come use any bathroom? And he said yes. So it was a little bit of a blip, but really was Ron DeSantis. And this whole started with Don't Say Gay, it led to the drag ban, and now it's the attack on trans, you know, affirming healthcare that has become this sort of like, it's a confusing narrative and it's intentionally confusing because people are all like, oh no, I love gay people and I right. love drag queens. Just keep them away from children in school. Yeah, it's very confusing. Uh, I, I, I will throw out, I actually, I forget if we talked about this recently. I know I've brought it up on the podcast years past, but um, a very good friend of mine used to work at an LGBT resource center at Eastern Michigan University. And so she had access to a lot of, you know, a lot of resources and studies and so forth. And um, a lot of folks in the field. And this would this would have been circa 2004, perhaps. And she told me at the time, she's like, if you, she's like, uh, she explained that most uh, anti-gay hate crimes, if you distill uh, the, the motive of the attacker, it's because the person was uh, bending gender too much for this, for obviously for this hateful person's mind. But, uh, but I that always stuck in my head where I was like, interesting that like, and and I I think this is I think we're you know now about twenty years down the road I think we're starting to see, you know, folks uh, who are non-binary and trans folks who are sort of upending what it means to be male or female or 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 whatever where however you fall on the spectrum and, you know, it doesn't surprise me that that there is a, a pretty concerted back backlash to that. Mm. And there's also been, I mean, within the trans community, it, this is not a new thing, this attack on the trans community. I mean, trans women of color in particular have been the victims of hate crimes for sure. countless of years, even long before even the modern gay rights movement. And, mm -hmm. and so, and we don't talk about those because of racism in this country, because of misogyny, because of a lot of different things. And, there are the big ones that we all sort of know, you know what I mean? Brandon Tina, we know even Matthew Shepard could be a great example of someone who was an effeminate young yeah. gay man who mm -hmm. had a situation of an attack. And so there is this sort of attack on when anybody goes against, be it if they're femme, be it if they're gender, be it whatever it is, goes against the binary of what we accept as a gay man and a lesbian woman. And if they don't fit in those brackets of what we see, then all of a sudden they're a freak, they're a danger, they're they're somehow. And if you give them too many rights, a lot of these people who are in my DMs leaving these comments are the ones being like, oh, well, now you've gone too far. You can't be a teacher. How dare you? They, they, they really th seem to threaten people and push them to violence, which is, you know, or or, or just like, dis you know, hatred or or disagreement. But like. It really does feel like this thing that you're pointing out, Brand, is like the thing that makes people snap. And and I, yeah. I guess I, I don't fully understand why. I don't understand why it you know carouses people and 
into well, it's the same with blue collar workers. It's the same thing that happened during the Obama administration when, you know, some areas of the workforce felt left out, you know, the middle America, blue collar middle Americans feeling like that the Democrats on the coast were leaving them out of the conversation in terms of the economy, farmers, you look at all any whenever a group feels sort of and this is me trying to understand their motives whenever they feel like their way of life is being put under sort of pressure and being told well you're outdated you're right. you're not up with everything then all of a sudden they feel attacked now that doesn't give them the right to respond in the way they've responded but on some level i get it and i think it's part of the disservice of the democrats and of progressive lefts to say all or nothing. There needs to be a more open, rational conversation that allows, we have trans people in our lives, they're, they're healthy. And I give credit to the Biden administration that they, they, they you know, appoint different trans Americans and different queer people to policy positions. But the problem is because Ron DeSantis is out here doing literally hate crimes, hate speeches, and putting out these things that are fueling the hate, it's like Pete Buttigieg gets out there and speaks and all of a sudden it's just, you know, straight dude screaming faggot just because he's a gay dude. And it's yeah. it's really appalling. I, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there where I feel like, you know, the left and I would I would I would shift away from the Democrat left and more the social media left has done such a terrible job of of hosting a dialogue about what it means to be trans and all these different things. And and I th I, I do genuinely believe that, like, I think the, the there's a backlash because the education towards trans rights and, and understanding what it means to be trans is just so bad. It's yeah. just on the flip side, it's just screaming. If, if you don't understand me instantly, then I hate you, you know, and you are wrong and you're the problem. And like that has, that has led to, I mean, quite literally, I think we've backslidden backslided yeah. over yeah. the last couple of years. And, you know, so for all those folks out there who, who think that they are you know, curing all ills, uh, by tweeting, <laughs> yeah. can't trying to cancel someone who disagrees with you on Twitter. I think you're literally creating uh, a worse problem. Well, and the thing that they can do is perhaps, and this is Brent's going to love me saying this, but perhaps get off Twitter and get off threads and give a phone call to someone you know in the Midwest, in the South, a voter who might be a little bit torn between you know, being bored of Biden, but not liking Trump and sort of lost in the messages and have a converse, have a rational conversation about your fucking life and about who you are and your friends and say yeah. like, this yeah. gender thing is not like something that is an attack on you. A trans person wanting just a fucking regular job, holding down a normal job just because of who they, they shouldn't be denied that. Yeah. Like those are the conversations we should be having. So don't get so angry on t Twitter. Instead, like connect with the people in your lives and maybe have- Oh my God, oh my God. Alan said I was right twice? I oh, know, What Shocking. is happening? Wow, it's a whole new world. Maybe you'll put me in more stories now. <laughs> Not even joking. We are here with Zachary Drucker. Uh, she is an artist, independent artist, a producer. Uh, openly trans open and proud trans woman who is um an artist of all types a renaissance gal if if uh, if i may say so she does work on gender and sexuality um in video performance and documentary um but most recently zachary co-directed the stroll which is currently on hbo and documents the history of um the meatpacking district in new york as a hub for transgender sex workers um before the neighborhood was gentrified um disneyland <laughs> game Disneyland. Thank you for being here, Zachary. 
Thank you so much for having me. What a gift. What um thank you for that fabulous introduction. I'm always first. bashful when I hear <laughs> um myself introduced. Well, that's a I mean, you have you've covered a lot of ground and um the stroll looks super interesting. I haven't watched it yet. It's, it's so good. I have watched it. it and it is so, so good, Zachary. It's like I'm always fascinated by sort of like queer New York history, and that's a part of it that has not been discussed enough. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and the thing that's so exciting about um, being in this life and being in this uh, field is being able to forefront stories that have for too long remained um, uh, yeah, underrepresented. Mm-hmm. What, what brought you to the project? Because I mean, uh, coming from New York, like I I do feel like, yeah, it was very much known that the Meatpacking District, at least years ago, was a hub for for sex work. And then, you know, as time has gone on, it's, so, you know, so deeply gentrified. Um, although there was still, wasn't there a Sex in the City episode where Samantha's yes. like, right, like living in Hell's Kitchen and there's yeah. like, yeah, the trans sex worker characters are pretty integral to the episode. But um, yes. Karen Coven, Karen Cover Girl, who was a legendary performer, was one of those actresses. Oh. And um, there was a few background actors, Lotilla DeBarge, Willem. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm forgetting who else. But yeah, we looked at those scenes. There was a version of the film in which we included them because they really happen at the turning point in... I think those episodes aired in 2000. It was mm-hmm. just before 9-11. And that was kind of the turning point in the neighborhood. And Kristen, my co-director on The Stroll, was working that night and watched the whole scene be filmed. And um, at one point, Samantha like pours a bucket of water on oh, the girls' right. heads. And she witnessed that whole scene. And um yeah, and unfortunately, we could not include it just because of legal purposes. <laughs> but um, that was referenced in a lot of our interviews with our subjects um, as the moment in which the gentrification really kicked into gear and you started to see white blonde women yeah. um, kind of infiltrate the neighborhood. What's so interesting about it, though, is that I think sort of tangentially when people talk about gentrification, they think it's sort of the old adage of, you know, when the queers move in, the housing prices go up and like it's the you know what I mean? There's sort of the idea of like, you know, there's a queer element to it. And I'm sure there was a lot of gay white dudes buying places in the meatpacking district and changing it in weird ways. But like it is interesting that it was a lot of sort of New York City high high money like like a like like well even like bethany frankel i think moved into the meatpacking district at some point like a lot of rich people were moving into the meatpacking district so like what what happened to the community that was in that district before the gentrification and where did they move to in new york to do their work it's interesting many of our subjects now live in brooklyn or the bronx or new jersey um to my knowledge, uh, none of them live in Manhattan. And I stayed in the meatpacking district while we were filming. Just one of the one of one of the three trips that I made. I stayed at the Standard, and I was 
Lord, <laughs> who was staying at that hotel and then spending time walking through the neighborhood with our subjects um, and just these ultra wealthy pedestrians who were so put out by a small film crew on the mm. sidewalk and just sneered walking hurriedly by with like a futuristic baby stroller and the perfect dog and <laughs> had to tell Louis Vuitton. <laughs> and I, I, it was just the shameless face of late capitalism and white supremacy. And it was so palpable. So, you know, we tried to really imbue that in the stroll. And I hope that, you know, everyone listening out there will check it out on HBO Max and, um, what happened to the community is is basically the subject of the film. Ultimately, it's about survival and sisterhood, and you know, um, our subjects have similar stories of being cast out of their homes um, in their developmental years as teenagers and had had to survive the streets, mm-hmm. um, doing survival sex work and um just other things in the underground economy and they are just legends and archetypes and inspirations today just doing the biggest you know the biggest things they're they are making a measurable impact particularly in new york Mm -hmm. yeah we yeah we were talking earlier in the podcast about how, you know, with a lot of these the trans bans that are happening with access to health care and so many different things, pieces of legislation around the country, like there's especially for trans women of color, just even gaining sort of gainful employment that they can have a, a sustainable life is incredibly difficult. And I think New York is so emblematic of really the struggle of a lot of marginalized communities and how like you know, even the economy in New York is already hard enough as it is. And then to walk in being one of the communities on the lowest rig of sort of the employment factor, there's as as sort of like the Giuliani years passed and the Bloomberg years came and all of this, a lot of these women and these sex workers, like where, how did they adjust to sort of the crackdown on the lack of access to even doing the work that they were doing? You know what I mean? Well, they were primarily incarcerated out of the neighborhood and had to just navigate a cycle of um, recidivism and, you know, being in jail and serving longer sentences. So that's, yeah, more um, structurally what happened. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Wow. It's, yeah, it's a travesty that we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world and do such a poor job of sharing resources. Yeah. But it's the, you know, the myth of um, just the singular genius, the singular entrepreneur, the person who deserves, you know, billions of dollars. Well, you've also um, worked on a, um, I mean, a bunch of different projects, but another documentary that you produced was is on Hulu called Queen Maker, um, the making of an it girl. And that is basically another very different uh, story about new, like New York gals about town, obviously a different flavor. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about um, 
about that. I know it's about Tinsley Mortimer and Paris Hilton, but there's also um, more to the story, obviously, as the documentary goes on. Well, it starts by going through, you know, through nostalgia to the 2000s um, heiress trend when, you know, rich white women in Manhattan were hiring publicists and managers, and they were the first generation of, you know, American aristocracy who were seeking publicity. And it started with Paris Hilton and then many other women, the Hearst cousins, um, Tinsley Mortimer, Bobby Oliveira-Costa, the, you know, socialites of New York and the aughts, um, were brought to prominence, you know, primarily through blogs. It was the beginning of the blog era and uh, pre-social media. So everyday people for the first time were able to put their opinions and thoughts out there. And as we all know, it, you know, was to a catastrophic effect in terms of what it did to some of those women's lives. Um, Anna Nicole Smith, Brittany Murphy come to mind as subjects of recent documentaries that really, I think, had a more critical evaluation of the impact of blogs. But in this microcosm of Manhattan Wealth, there was, you know, a few blogs that, that focused on those women. And one of the writers of one of those blogs was a very unexpected person at the time and was the subject of, you know, media curiosity and was in the New York Times and New York Magazine and then kind of disappeared. And it's a story about that person, Morgan Olivia Rose, mm -hmm. just as much as it's about um, the women that she was writing about as a young uh, college student in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. Because she was so kind, kind of, of like original. I mean, she's she sort of rose to prominence and then disappeared, but was kind of like a gossip girl 1.0 character. It was, is that does that make sense to to oppose of her that way? Yes, the real life gossip girl. Real life gossip. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's in the tagline of the yeah. film. So you hit the nail on the head there. Well, and I mean, she was she was also trans, right? Like she or she was she was trans, and that's what sort yeah. of made it yeah. interesting. Is that I mean, it's so interesting that the, the aughts in general are the most fucked up time. If you, I mean, if you really break it down, you watch some of those old David Letterman interviews, or like any of the interviews with any young actress or young socialite or anybody in between nineteen. 97 and like 2010 and it is literally a recipe for the me too, me too movement it is yeah. just gross icky television agreed oh, but it's so interesting how you know quickly social standards can change and evolve oh. and thank god we're living in a time in which you know people are some people are looking at it um in a more clear-eyed way Mm -hmm. Of course, while others are, you know, indignant and trying to resist a modernizing world. Yeah. 
it's also interesting too that like back then and if you're talking about like it girls there is such a distinct element of like the new york it girl the like tinsley mortimer or like i remember that writer julia allison and they were like the subject Mm -hmm. of these blogs ires you know I, i remember that clearly i don't know how much that spread outside of new york but maybe that's you know super (laughs) ethnocentric of me but it felt so present just by the nature of what websites i was surfing while i was young and 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 living in new york but you know here we are you know 20 years later and tinsley blew up on a reality show about you know she became a real housewife of new york and like just fascinating to see where all of their um, trajectories have taken them. Yeah, Time keeps on moving forward. <laughs> yeah. And we all have many chapters of, of life. And mm-hmm. It's exciting well, to anticipate all of the things that we'll get ourselves into. And intensely Mortimer will get herself into and we'll get to witness. I mean, yeah, I, I watched every single second of her on Housewives. Uh, <laughs> I, but you look at someone even like she's Paris, widely, she's widely beloved. For yes, sure. she's great. But if you look at someone like Paris Hilton and like, you know, I, I had the opportunity to like do a, a magazine story on Paris this last year and like spending those few days with her. And it blew me away how like this woman was so I I wouldn't say villainized, but was just sort of like pushed into sort of one category and one category only. And you hear the sort of the story behind a lot of her experiences during that time and the trauma that she was experiencing and everything. It's just, it, it makes you really wonder, like, how did we let the people in power get away with some of these things? You know what I mean? Like how, but then also how, like even I, even Paris talked about this being sort of culpable in some situations and like wanting to be famous. And so there's like this, it's like the draw of fame, but also, the crazy predators that are like a part of it that are pushing it at the same time, you know? Well, certainly so few of those young women were conscious of themselves as feminists or aware of feminism. And it was such an anti-feminist moment. Mm -hmm. And um, we are culpable and, you know, we're culpable today for, for different things for, you know, an attempt to basically dismantle our democracy by one of the political parties in power and all of the totalitarian kind of um, tropes to go along with it, including, you know, trying to spread hatred of LGBTQI people and, um, taking away women's reproductive rights and targeting immigrants and it's all um yeah so it's interesting what is our responsibility i mean i feel deeply responsible and personally responsible Mm -hmm. for many of these things whether i am or not withstanding um it's that feeling of personal responsibility that i think is so absent today as we all kind of um zone out and enjoy the comforts of um yeah what's available yeah of tmz i mean i'll i'll be i'll admit it i was on paris hilton or on a paris hilton perez hilton and i was on all of those sites back in the day and like i mean i was obsessed with it just as much as everyone else but that also means i was fueling the beast you know 
I I looked at Perez Hilton too, so don't beat yourself. Yeah, I'm not beating myself. It's up all good. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think what's interesting is how yeah how we didn't have a critical view. Yeah, but that's that's the amazing thing about living in the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can really look back and be like, oh wow, we were really left out of a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> and we were conscious then too. I mean, now we're of a generation where it's not like we were children, like. You know, I was a young 20-something-year-old reading those blogs, yeah. and I'm very much that person today. Yeah. So, I yeah. still you know, like, when I was watching, uh, when I would watch, like, The Housewives early er, early on, you know, like, 09, 10, and I would watch it, and my sister would be like, you know, that, that's that's so, like, bad for women. And I was like, mm-hmm. why? It's like they're, they're, they're volunteering to do this. And she, and she said, like, because every scene has the editing like the 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 sort of overall narrative of the edit it's always you stupid yeah bitch. like it always ends in being like this stupid bitch this dumb bitch and she wasn't wrong you know it it, it kind of changed the way i saw saw everything where it was like oh right the narrative that follows yes of course this show but like just the general like tabloidy pop cultural era was like isn't paris hilton a stupid bit aren't isn't that she a stupid bit? it was just so yeah eager there yeah. was some eagerness to shit on 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 women just for being women it was and it was so there and yeah right. we, we were young but we were adults or being eager for fame or for or success or whatever we just shame them for it in a way specifically women yeah definitely yeah mis- misogyny is, yeah. is something everybody is vulnerable nobody is you know impervious to misogyny yeah yeah, that's so true. Women included, you know, trans people included. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so, we're so steeped in a civilization based on, you know, a, a patriarchy that um, people are real freaked out about losing it. Yeah. Those times, the age of Aquarius. <laughs> well, I did want to ask you because you directed one of my it was sort of like, I mean, I watched it because of you, because I knew you, but I didn't know anything about the story. The And I think this is a documentary Brent would actually love because it's Lady in the Dale. It's about sort of like this, this, this uh, woman who created this car and really sort of like had some competition for a lot of sort of the Michigan automakers. And, but her backstory was insane that like (laughs) nobody i mean how this woman by all she she, a trans woman she was should not have been able to succeed in the way that she was able to succeed and get away with some of the things that she was able to get away with and yet she did i mean what was it like how did you discover the story of elizabeth carmichael who's the subject of lady and the dale the dale is the car that she created and like did it did it just blow you away as much as i was blown away by it Yes, are you kidding? Um, I, what a gift Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael was and is in my life. And her gumption, her (laughs) sense of conviction, her um, just, what's the word? Oh my God, it's escaping me right now. Chutzpah. She had chutzpah. The chutzpah. (laughs) (laughs) And the tenaciousness, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. The tenaciousness um, is really a gift to us all, I think. And The Lady in the Deal came about. It it crossed my desk 
in 2019 when Nick Camilleri, who I co-directed the series with, um, approached Duplass Brothers Productions and they were able to successfully pitched the idea to HBO. And at that point they were looking for a producer. And so I hopped on board and went on the road for months with Nick and the crew filming the interviews and ended up conducting some of the interviews. And I just um, became deeper and deeper in the story and then helmed the edit of the series in in post, which was the majority of 2020, or it was all of 2020, uh, really. Maybe it was it was a 10 month, maybe it was 10 month at it. Um and on Zoom, you know, that was yeah. the the beginning of the pandemic when you know we were in the office one day and the next day we were on uh Skype at this time. <laughs> Yeah, And that was, you know, a real, it was such a gift to it's, work on that project with them. The documentary is so interesting because it sort of plays out almost like a true crime documentary. I mean, I think very much so, but also like a personal narrative. But it's like the car, she had this vision for sort of like a fuel efficient three wheeled car and <laughs> she, she created it. And then like, it became sort of like a hot car of the 70s in a small niche way, right? It did in the sense that it uh, appeared on The Price is Right. And it was, you know, Liz was selling options on the car and got a ton of news coverage, mostly here in Los Angeles. And she was in uh, Encino yeah. or... Oh, she was in the valley. I don't think it was this far. <laughs> Maybe it was in Sino. Yeah. I should really know all the because I was so steeped in Liz's story for so long. Um, I actually dreamt in Liz's storyline for months. Oh, you dreamt <laughs> Wait, what do you mean you dreamt in it? Like I dreamt through her story. Oh, wow. Um, the first person like, kind of thing. Yeah, it was a kind of channeling that started to happen, especially when we were deep. In, I mean, it's a four episode series. So at one point, you know, we were working on all four episodes. Um, we we're finishing the first episode. We were, you know, in a rough cut on the second, a fine, you know, or whatever, a fine cut on the second, a rough cut on the third, and then trying to figure out the last episode at the same time. And because so much production stopped during the pandemic, there was also a gap in programming. So I don't know if you guys remember, but all of the networks um, and streaming services were scrambling to compensate for the slowdown in production and things not. So we, we really raced to the finish line to get that out. And, you know, part of the success, I think, was the timing yeah, it's released because it actually came out during, you know, before people were vaccinated. So people were really at home waiting yeah. for something new. Yeah. Well, they've got, I mean, within your canon, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff to watch. This is me, transparent. 
um, and they can see your work at museums around the world. And we just wanted to say thank you again for for being here. Um, and you know, there's an exhaustive list of uh, of work that people can follow uh, of yours. But where would you like people to follow you online? I use Instagram. That's where I'm most that works. active. <laughs> and my name is um, B-A-C-K-A-R-Y. D-R-U-C-K-E-R. Yeah, Zachary with a C-K. Great. Very unusual. But Very. I, find, I, do pop, I do pop up when you search me on Instagram. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. What a gift. Thank you guys so much. I really love the conversation. And another thing. So have you guys ever wanted to, well, not actually ever wanted. Have you ever had an accent? And I say that to Alan as a Missouri, Missourian, <laughs> and as a Mich, Michigander. Michigander, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've I, heard Brent say da- dad. Brent says dad. Yeah, I have I have the word, the Midwest words, like we talked about before, like pillow instead of pillow. And mm-hmm. I put the E instead of the I in a lot of words because of Missouri. And that's a very normal Missouri thing. Um, but when I was younger, because my dad is German and he learned like British English. So I, and I was being raised by my dad and my grandparents mainly because my parents divorced, that there were certain words that I would say in school that would get a laugh because I would... It wasn't so much I would like talk like a British person, but I would I would enunciate in a certain way or I would like I would just speak differently than a lot of the other kids because of my home life and German accent. It wasn't with a German accent. It was just because it was I felt like I almost I was just enunciating and you know sort of what I've always had like people say like oh I have a voice that's like a radio voice or that's on and I think that came from living in a family that spoke different languages, but specifically when they spoke English, it was very literal enunciated calm English because my dad didn't want to have the German accent or didn't want to, you know what I mean? Like, and so I then started to speak like that. What is the St. Louis accent? I mean, I don't even know. It's Midwestern. It's very, it's, I mean, to me, it's very much like the American accent. It's like, it's without, with the exception of a few words like milk and pillow and stuff or wash. Yeah. How do you say, how do you say the, the thing that comes from cows? How do you say it? Milk. Melt. You say you could sort of like a yeah. like a, a a soft. E. I drop the I drop the I and I basically make it an E. That's basically. How do you yeah. say, do you say R-O-O-M? room? Room. How do you say it? Well, you say room, right, Brent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, room. Rich people say rum. Oh, really? Yeah. I now, I, are you thinking of? I've heard people call a roof a rough. Rough too. I've heard. Yeah, which is just room, absurd. Rough. But is that a? I think it's a wealth thing. Uh, not, not if you've been to Michigan, the, the <laughs> folks calling it a rough are not generally <laughs> what you would associate with wealth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the lingering, um, you know, my, I've, I've said, uh, I've said before, my mom was an East coast elitist who would not allow us to, uh, um, get any sort of Midwest accent. So she was, she would instantly, um, beat out of us, not physically, but she would beat out of us like any any use of the word ain't um, and any sort of Michigan, any sort of like nasally a Michigan accent. But that's um, the, the tell is every any you or any of our friends from Michigan or the Midwest, everyone <clears throat> says dad, everyone. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's really accent. where where it comes out most still for me now is 
is whenever I'm not watching myself, I will say dad. I, lo- I love it. Uh, yeah. I, love dad. I have a different uh, voice flab. when I perform too. When I get on stage, I tend to have a different voice as well. I tend to like, it becomes showier. <laughs> you do you become uh, like friend dresser. I do in a way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do. It becomes, I think it was because, I mean, when I started, it just, I talked like B. Arthur. That was like my first stand up set, was me basically delivering jokes like B. Arthur. And I think because of that, like, that's just like the way, and now in drag, of course, it's like where I kind of blend between the two. I go into like when I get angry, loud, it's very Jewy. But then when I get like sort of sardonic and like, like I'm responding to people, I get into my own voice, which is like yeah. a male deep voice, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a damn. What about you, Elliot? Did you ever have any like Long Island affect? Oh my God. I, I, yeah, I had the heavy, the absolute heaviest accent as a kid, like genuinely, like. You, if, if you see home videos or whatever it's there's video, i mean there's even one video of my dad being like oh man you, you really like knocked out early right and i was like yeah well i watched the cosby show and then i, fell asleep. <laughs> I remember you showing a video and you had the strongest long island wow. accent. even wow. like when i was on wheel of fortune you hear my the, the, the accent is so strong and i swear for so long i was like i don't have an accent and then i think it was really up and even in high school people were like Oh, you don't have an accent, but I definitely did. It was just less so in comparison to everybody else. But the accent, my parents still have. It was it was funny. Accents. We had a we had a guest on the podcast who shall re- remain nameless for the moment. But we had a great chat, and she was fantastic. Uh, but if you guys wanted to see my face after getting offended, we ended and like the we ended the recording, and the first thing uh, she said to me while we were still on Zoom before hanging up, she said. Um, Brent, where are you from in Michigan? And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> How did you know? And she said, I could tell from your accent. And I, I literally was just appalled. Ah! And she had gone, she had gone to the University of Michigan. So she's like, I'm familiar with it. But uh, but I I was truly like well, some like people pick shaken. up on accents better than others. Like I yeah, for sure. I, those little like someone like that picking up on a because I find Midwest accents, with the exception of maybe like Minnesota, to be so the differences are so <laughs> subtle between st louis new york detroit minneapolis like they're they're so subtle that like it's really hard to pick up on the differences i find yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure i and, i uh, always know when I, it's it's not just brent it's like any of our friends in the midwest the moment i hear dad i'm like yeah i just know yeah, yeah. but yeah. i wouldn't know otherwise dad dad yeah my dog i'm gonna all right I'm, I, I'm done i'm done talking i'm gonna go call my dog <laughs> What would your aunt say? Brent, what would your Aunt Ramona say about something she heard on today's show? I don't like Ron DeSantis because he's too liberal on gay issues. (laughs) My Aunt Joanne would say, you know what? Not for nothing, I don't have an accent. (laughs) How about Aunt Anne? My Aunt Anne would say, I have always loved the LGBTQ, especially the BLT part. It's so dumb. Very good. <laughs> but I love it. Very good. Okay, now I want a BLT. Ah, BLTs suck, actually. Yeah, I don't think they're that great. But I also don't eat bacon. Good night and good luck.